0: Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and momentarily I'll be reading uh, verses 8 through 24. Before I read, I just want to make a, a, a brief comment that uh, some of you uh, will, will recall the context of this comment if you were here for last week's message. But every time we come to God's Word, the fundamental question that confronts us is, will we trust God's assessment? Will we trust God's counsel? Will we trust His Word? Or are we going to Subject Scripture to our scrutiny. Are we going to stand in judgment over Scripture? Are we going to assume that that we know better? That's that's the, that's the fundamental question. And I, I just encourage all of us as we come to God's Word today to come with the heart attitude that I am I am submitting myself to God's judgments, God's assessments, God's words, because. Only his words will give us life. Let me read uh, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Holy Scripture says And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the, days of, all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living and at the east of the garden of eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life this is god's word and it is for our good let's pray father we need your help father our our hearts are prone to wander Our sinful hearts are prone to dismiss or minimize or reject the clear teaching of Your Word. Father, I pray that You would come and as we sang, that You would give Your Word success. That Your Word would dwell deeply in our hearts. That we would submit our own hearts and minds to Your judgments and to Your will and that we would be transformed. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be actively at work as we contemplate your word in Jesus name. Amen. So let's let's get right into it. In in verses 8 through 13, God confronts the now sinful man and woman. We were created for Loving and joyful fellowship with the Lord. And the tragedy of sin is that sin breaks apart that fellowship. Part of the creature creator fellowship is that the creature must honor the creator's authority. But sin is rebellion. And sin brings guilt and shame. And sin undermines peace with God and results in conflict with God. For some time after Adam and Eve were created, they enjoyed fellowship with God. On an ordinary day in sinless Eden, Adam and his wife would have welcomed the presence of the Lord and perhaps they would have walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But not this day. They had broken faith. They had violated God's instruction. Instead of being humble creatures, they decided to make a play for godlike powers. And then guilt and shame descended upon them. And now they wanted to hide from the Lord God who had made them and loved them. The most natural thing for a sinless person to do is to rejoice in the presence of the Lord. But the most natural thing for a sinful person to do is to retreat from the presence of the Lord. As the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 3, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. So it is a very good thing that God seeks out us. So the man and his wife, now being sinful, they seek to hide from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, you may wish to hide from God, but if God wants to find you, He will. He knows where you are. And He knows how to draw you out of hiding. Although, the passage that I read is a very sobering passage, Don't miss the fact that God does not say, I'm done with you too. God doesn't leave them in their guilt-laden, shame-ridden, hiding and helpless selves. Instead, God addresses them. He calls out to them. He calls them out of hiding. He seeks to continue to be in relationship with them. So although the judgment is unmistakable, Certainly, there's a a judgment tone to this passage. The grace is also unmistakable. Don't miss that. Where are you? The Lord God calls out to the man. Of course, the the Lord knows where Adam is. And the Lord knows why Adam is where he is. The Lord's question is not aimed at information, but at relationships. At transparent conversation, at the opportunity for confession and repentance, where are you? Is a very good question, isn't it? I wonder if the Lord would impress upon any of you this morning this very question Where are you? Not your physical location, not your GPS coordinates, but your spiritual location. Where are you? Are you in the place where God has placed you? And are you doing in that place what God has given you to do? Or have you turned away? God placed Adam in the garden in order to keep the garden and to care for his wife. And Adam is still in the garden, but on his watch, both the garden and his marriage have been ransacked by a snake. What has happened on your watch, man? What is going on in your heart? Where are you? Now in verses 10 to 12, Adam is willing to answer God's questions. He, he answers these these questions in a very in a true very matter-of-fact way, but you don't get the sense that Adam is experiencing broken-hearted contrition and eager-hearted repentance at this point. The Adam's answer comes in verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Fair enough. Uh, it's interesting though, isn't it? That Adam wasn't completely naked, was he? <laughs> he he had clothed himself with fig leaves and a loincloth. But fig leaves and a uh, loincloth, or another way of saying it is, our own attempts to cover our nakedness don't succeed in the presence of the one before whom everything is laid bare. As... Uh, In in reality, Adam was still naked in the presence of God. Exposed, ashamed, guilty, and afraid. The next question comes in verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Of course, God knows exactly what Adam has done, but again, he's inviting him into conversation and repentance. But notice that instead of focusing on his own disobedience, Adam focuses on external circumstances. He focuses on what others have done in his answer in verse 12. The the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. There's the emphasis. The emphasis is on the woman and on the God who made the woman and uh, and, and and what the woman has done. Adam is maximizing. He's ma- putting maximal emphasis on what others have done and minimal emphasis on what he has done. And oh, by the way, and I ate. You know, I'm the victim here. Can't you see these circumstances are piling up against me? And there, there's, a, there's an important lesson to learn here. The most important thing about you is not what is happening outside of you. It's not what other people are doing. It's what's going on inside of you. And particularly, your own heart responsiveness to the Lord and to His instruction. And so, so, so Adam... Adam plays the blame game. And by the way, this is the beginning of all ugly relationships. You can take it right down to the level of husband and wife, or you can look at it in terms of a local congregation, or you can look at it like all all of the wonderful relationship techniques that we see displayed in in politics uh, through the media. Um, and what's going on people people are primarily focused on what other people have done that is the problem we're always shifting blame onto others and what that results in is a relationally toxic culture you want a relationally healthy culture don't play the blame game Minimize the responsibility of others and maximize your own responsibility before God. And seek to walk in repentance. And when you do that, believe it or not, you will have grace, more grace for others. Now, after confronting the man in verses 9 to 12, God turns to the the woman in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Now he's inviting her into conversation and repentance. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Her her, her answer bears some similarity to Adam's. She she immediately directs attention to the, the, the serpent's activity. Nevertheless, she does acknowledge that she was deceived. And being deceived in a matter about which God has given instruction is morally blameworthy. In fact, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, Paul confirms that indeed the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Second Corinthians 11:3. So uh, uh, the, the woman's answer is slightly better than the man's. But there's definitely no broken-hearted repentance that has uh, come out of their hearts at this point. After the initial confrontation, God imposes penalties on the serpent, the woman, and the man in verses 14 to 19. And so that's the the next section here. I want you to notice a general pattern to these penalties. God imposes penalties first on the serpent and then on the woman and then on the man. And in very general terms, these penalties bear some, there's a similar pattern. I kind of see in these penalties that there's a hardship penalty imposed on each guilty party, and then there is a conflict penalty imposed on each guilty party. And so, I'm going, to, I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to call attention to the hardship penalty and then I'm going to call attention to the conflict penalty. And you'll also notice as we go through this that the punishment fits the criminal. Now, we're familiar with the concept of the punishment fitting the crime and certainly the punishment fits the crime of high treason against the Lord God Almighty. Any punishment that He gave us would be, would be fitting We are worthy of death on account of our sin, but I want you to. I'm going to call attention to the fact that God's punishments are are actually very fitting for the criminal, for the particular villain, traitor, rebel that He is imposing a penalty upon. So let's begin with God's imposition of a penalty on the serpent in verses 14 and 15. Remember, the Genesis chapter 3 serpent is an actual animal serpent that has been hijacked by the devil. The first penalty, the hardship penalty, applies to the animal serpent. And the second penalty, the conflict penalty, applies to the devil. So look at the hardship penalty in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In this penalty, God strikes at the serpent's pride. In Genesis 3-1, we were told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. In terms of craftiness and shrewdness, the serpent was on top. No more. Now, the serpent is going to the bottom. Now the serpent is cursed above all livestock and all beasts of the field. Why do serpents, why do snakes, slither on their bellies? This is why. We may we may assume that God originally designed serpents to stand and move upright as a very majestic and exalted creature. But now, because of their unwitting complicity in the rebellion, they are struck down to the ground and their pride is turned to humiliation. Then we come to the conflict penalty in verse 15. In the rebellion the serpent deceived the woman drew the woman into the lie attempted to get the woman onto his team attempted to turn to turn God's good order upside down and attempted to become the serpent king over the earth now God says to the devil standing behind the serpent you will not succeed Yes, you will have some partial success, you will will have offspring, and you will do some bruising, but you will ultimately fail, and your head will be fatally bruised. Let me read verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Remember, this is a penalty on Satan. It's it's good news for the woman and it's good news for human beings, but he's speaking to the serpent and it's bad news for that ancient serpent, the devil. You attempted to get the woman onto your team, but I will put enmity between you and the woman. And this enmity between you and the woman will be extended into enmity between... Your offspring or your seed and her offspring or her seed. The, the, now I think there's a couple things going on here. This this word offspring, it's singular, and we and we understand the very individual battle that is presented at the end of verse 15, where the seed of the woman is bruising the head of the serpent, whereas the serpent is bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. There's this this individual conflict that we understand is is ultimately referring to the Messiah. Uh, This is the the first promise of the Messiah that there, there will be at some time in the future a male descendant Of the woman who will rise up as the great serpent crusher and deal the the serpent a death blow. And so this is the this is the first mention of, of explicit mention of the gospel. But all of us, you and me, we are caught up in this battle. What 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 God is assuring Satan of is here is that there's going to be a history long conflict, spiritual conflict between the people that the serpent co-ops into, onto his team and the woman here now representing a, 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 someone who's a recipient of God's grace. And God is sep- separating her, putting her on the other side of of the serpent. So now you have these these two humanities. You have humanity that's operating under the serpent and the serpent's lies, and you have humanity that is operating under the grace of God. And you see this conflict unfold in the book of Genesis and throughout the entire Bible. For example, in the very next chapter, we're gonna, we're going to learn about Cain and Abel. And when the Apostle John is reflecting on Genesis chapter 4, in 1 John chapter 3, he he understands that Cain is of the evil one. He is a child of the devil, spiritually speaking. Jesus applied the same terminology to to the corrupt religious leaders that they were of their father the devil. And it's interesting, uh, in in, uh, Revelation chapter 12, which I preached from a few years ago, um, this whole whole conflict is unfolded for us and it says in in, uh, Revelation 12, 17, then the dragon, another reference to that ancient serpent, the devil. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And it's interesting, even though Jesus dealt the decisive blow to the power of Satan at the cross, nevertheless... The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and you know what he said? In Romans 16.20 The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't it a wonderful gift of grace that the Lord Jesus Christ has won a victory and in that victory he has ordained that his bride will get to put her feet, and crush the snake? Let's see. Let's move on. So, the serpent is going to be frustrated, and ultimately, he's going to lose. But he is going to cause a lot of heartache, a lot of trouble, A lot of persecution, a lot of division along the way. Now in verse 16, God imposes penalties on the woman. Let's first look at the hardship penalty. The woman was created to be a giver and nurturer of life. This encompasses the entirety of the woman's life, but is especially evident in her role as bearer of children. In the rebellion, the woman was deceived and became a facilitator of death. Now, by God's grace, the woman will still bear children, even as we saw in verse 15, and here again in verse 16, the woman will still bear children and will still nurture life, but henceforth, she will experience much sorrow and pain in connection with childbearing. Now, I am unsure whether this specific penalty is meant to include such things as infertility, miscarriage, infant mortality, maternal mortality, all of which things are obviously a part of this fallen world in which we live. But the definite focus of the hardship penalty is that delivering children into this world is going to be Painful. Now, this is obviously not a good time for—it's uh, it's not a good time for men to say, "I know what this is like." <laughs> so let me let me share a, let me share a quote from a uh, m- medically and theologically trained woman named Mary Cassian, who writes this: Childbirth is painful. I had read about it and believed it before the birth of my first child, yet nothing could have prepared me for the intense agony of labor. Labor pain is simply inexplicable to one who has not experienced it. Dr. Ronald Melzac, a leading expert in the field of pain, has recently completed research on the intensity of labor pain. He found that, on average, labor pain ranks among the severest. According to his study, it may be exceeded only by the suffering of some terminal cancer patients and often is worse than having a finger amputated without anesthetic. It is difficult to imagine a relatively pain-free birth process. However, this is what the Creator had in mind prior to the fall. Thus, the first part of the judgment on woman decreed physical and mental pain as well as emotional grief and turmoil in childbearing. Bringing forth children from this point forward is going to be, is going to bring the body, heart, and mind of a woman to the breaking point. Now let's go to the second half of verse 16, which is the conflict penalty. In the serpent's conflict penalty, in verse 15, God put enmity between the serpent and and the woman, which is fitting because the serpent had, had sought to trick the woman into, be, into becoming a serpent follower. And God says no. Now in the woman's conflict penalty, in verse 16, God puts conflict between the woman and her husband, which is fitting because in the fall, earlier in chapter 3, the woman had abandoned her proper role as helper to the man. And instead, she took the lead and persuaded her husband to join her in obedience to the serpent. And now God says, in the second half of verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The idea is, you will continue to make efforts to usurp your husband's authority, but he shall rule over you. The phrase, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, or it can also be translated toward your husband or for your husband. It's a bit challenging to understand this statement. It's, it's uh, theoretically possible in terms of what the word means. It, it could refer to romantic desire, but it doesn't have to refer to romantic desire, and it really doesn't make sense in this context. What makes sense in this context, in the context of the fall, where God is imposing penalties that fit the crime and the particular criminal, there, there, there's, there's, there's conflict. There's relational conflict now between Adam and Eve. And I want to show you something from uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where this same word is used, and because of the close proximity between Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7, this seems very helpful and enlightening in terms of understanding Genesis 3.16. In Genesis 4.7, God is speaking to Cain, and he says... In the latter part of verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The The same phraseology is used there where God is telling Cain that sin desires to have you. Sin desires to control you. Sin desires to master you, but you must master it. You must rule over it. So here your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you the bible's instruction for the man to lead the home and to also exercise leadership in the church and in the world is not based primarily on chapter 3 verse 16 in fact genesis 3:16 is not a command to the man rather It is a promise of frustration for the woman that as a fitting consequence for her sin, she is going to experience frustration in her marriage. What Genesis 3.16 is, is a statement of fact. Just as it is certain that the woman's male descendant will crush the head of the serpent. And just as it is certain that the man shall return to the dust. So it is certain that the husband will rule over his wife. Which will be very frustrating to a wife who wants to be in charge. Now, whether the husband's rule is constructive or destructive depends on other factors and that's beyond the scope of this verse. But I, I would have you know that there's nothing inherently negative about the word translated rule here in verse 16. It's not not as if it it automatically refers to despotic and totalitarian rule. Uh, The same word is used to to describe how the sun and the moon rule over over the day and the night. The same word is used to describe Joseph ruling over the land of Egypt. So, down through the corridor of time, the man shall rule his wife. Finally, we come to the penalties imposed on the man in verses 17-19. to Before God announces the penalties on the man, God calls attention to the man's sin. Remember, as head of the human race, he bears a special responsibility for the sinking of the ship. And in verse 17a, God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Adam exchanged the authority of God's voice for the authority of a creature's Voice, in this case, his wife's voice. Adam contravened a direct order that he had received from the Creator. And for his insubordination, he receives at least two penalties in verses 17 to 19. In Adam's case, the hardship penalty and the conflict penalty are almost inseparable, but not quite. The hardship penalty, in the middle of verse 17, is actually placed where? On the ground. On the earth. Although this will directly and significantly and negatively impact the man's life. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Now this penalty fits the criminal perfectly. As can be seen by remembering the man's assignment in Genesis chapter 2. The man was created out of dust from the ground and he was assigned to work the ground. Do you remember? Specifically, the man was stationed as the steward of the garden and he was commissioned to work it and keep it. It was Adam's privilege to work a blessed earth that would be cooperative, that would be agreeable to Adam's management, that would yield up all kinds of good fruit. No weeds. No blights. No pests, no droughts, no floods, no hailstorms, no bombs. Adam got to manage and develop a very good earth with no built-in hindrances to his work. But with the hardship penalty, God says to Adam, no more. Many years ago, I heard someone put it this way. When man rebelled against God, God caused the ground to rebel against the man. Man acted against God's authority. Henceforth, the earth will act against man's authority. When in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul was reflecting back on Genesis 3, he describes it in phrases like this. The creation was subjected to futility. Romans 8.20 The creation is in bondage to corruption. Romans 8.21 The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Romans 8.22 The world is broken. The physical creation, ecosystems, weather patterns, soil quality, the animal world, the microscopic world, It's all shot through with corruption now. Why? This is why. Because Prince Adam abandoned his proper role as obedient servant to the High King of Heaven and chose to esteem his wife's voice over and against God's voice. And so now, Prince Adam's earthly realm is afflicted with a curse. Welcome to my realm, This is my doing. I'm responsible for this. My sin invited this judgment from the Most High God. Which means that mankind's great dominion mandate to subdue the earth is now going to be exceedingly difficult, labor intensive, costly. The conflict penalty on Adam, on the man, is found in the rest of verses 17-19. to The, The hardship penalty... Of a cursed earth rolls right into the conflict penalty. Adam will experience pain and frustration in his attempt to win bread from the earth. Adam is tasked to work the ground, and this work will be exhausting, backbreaking, and strenuous. Verse 17 In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18 thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. We need to understand from Genesis 1 and 2 that work is good. Work in and of itself is inherently good, but frustrating painstaking work with all kinds of hindrances and setbacks is the consequence of Adam's sin. Men, work that wears you out, breaks you down, presents a barrage of obstacles, yields a small return for your efforts, makes you want to give up, that is the conflict penalty that God imposed upon the first man and upon every man that follows in his steps. In this conflict with the cursed ground, you will experience some partial success, won't you? You shall eat, verse 17. You shall eat the plants of the field, verse 18. You shall eat bread, verse 19. There is God-ordained provision, but obtaining it is going to be a sweaty and costly endeavor. Even though you will experience partial success in your earthly labors, in the end, Adam, in the end, man, you will return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You see, this was not inevitable. Even though man was made from dust of the earth, he was also made in God's image. And the plan was for the man to prove faithful as God's image bearer and to live forever and to be a bright reflection of God's heavenly glory. But instead, Adam proved unfaithful and so now he is destined to descend back to the earthy dust from which he came. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. As I've hinted at, these judgments were not only for the man and the woman and the serpent, in that immediate context, but they imply to the entirety of the human race, all of human history. This is the world that our precious little ones, and I've got at least seven named here who've been among us in recent weeks. Charlie, Titus, Nehemiah, Abe, Grace, Marion, Elijah. This is the world that our precious little ones are born into it is a cursed conflict-laden sorrowful painful stressful spiritually dangerous world with the long shadow of death cast over the whole lot you and they will need a lot of grace in order to navigate survive and possibly discover joy in this heartbreaking and backbreaking world Let's move to verses 20 to 21 where God demonstrates grace to the man and his wife. The very fact that God has not written Adam and his wife out of the story, the very fact that God has not consigned Adam and his wife to immediate physical death provides the backdrop to verse 20. The woman will live and be a life giver a child bearer. So much so that in due course, one of her male descendants will deal a death blow to the serpent. The man also will live and work the ground, and with his wife will have children and grandchildren, and they will enjoy meals around the dinner table. All grace. Therefore, Adam leans into God's overture of grace and gives his wife a name that is worthy of God's promise of life. Eve. Then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. There's a play on words here I have in my English Standard Version footnote, this this note. Eve sounds like the Hebrew for life-giver and resembles the word for living. Eve. Life. Life giver. She, she didn't have any sons or daughters yet, but Adam believed. Adam exercised a measure of faith in the, the, the course that God was charting for them, and he gave his wife a fitting name. And as Jonathan Sepharti mentioned also it, from Genesis chapter 1, it expresses Adam's intent to walk in obedience to the Lord and with his wife to multiply and fill the earth. Adam exercises faith in response to the grace of God. And then in verse 21, God clothes Adam and Eve. A number of years ago, I was reading a book and this, this thought stuck with me about how after Adam and Eve sinned and after we sin also, there's there's... You can't go back to the way it was before you sinned. You you can never go back. Adam and Eve cannot go back to unashamed nakedness in paradise. You can't go back. That That will never be ever again. You can only go forward and the only way to go forward is now to be clothed. But our attempts to clothe ourselves, not speaking mainly now in terms of apparel, physical apparel, but to the attempt to cover our shame, to atone for our sin, to compensate for our deficiencies, to make ourselves presentable in the sight of others, and and even more so, to think to ourselves that we are somehow presentable in the sight of God. Our our own fig leaves and loincloths will never suffice to cover our guilt and shame. God alone is able to cover our guilt and shame. And He graciously does so for Adam and Eve. He graciously clothes them. And the reference to garments of skins almost certainly refers to animal hide and thus there was the first sacrifice out of which god made clothing to cover the guilt of the first man and the first woman and so we can see how verses 15 and verses 21 come together ultimately, in our Lord Jesus Christ. God sent forth His Son, the Messiah, to crush the head of the serpent. And how did He crush the head of the serpent? By getting His own heel bruised, by suffering death upon the cross, dying for our sins in order to make atonement for our sins and cleanse our hearts so that his own god pleasing obedience and righteousness would be imputed to us and would cover us and make us presentable in the sight of god that is the gospel promised in genesis 3:15 and pictured in genesis 3:21 finally moving to the final 3 verses Finally, God expels the man from the garden and prevents access to the tree of life. Now this is a mercy and a judgment. It is a mercy because the man has become his own ungodly ungodly arbiter of right and wrong. Now he he, he's decided to take the law into his own hands and now he's shot through with 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 corruption. He has no capacity to do a good job of making the rules because he was made to live under God's judgments and God's standards. And now he's wicked and sinful and he's gonna take a lot of wrong steps. There's gonna be a lot of wrong steps between Genesis three and Revelation twenty one. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living forever physically in this morally and spiritually filthy world? And God says, not gonna happen. He, he'd already said that we're gonna die. But the tree of life was of such a quality, the fruit from that tree actually. Has the ability under God's appointment and design to impart everlasting physical life. So God saw to it that they would never partake of that fruit until his own people are glorified in Revelation chapter 22. So there's mercy here, but there's also, you can't miss the judgment though, either. The garden was the man's first home, evicted. The garden was his first workplace. Fired! The the garden was the first temple where the man met with God. Kicked out from garden paradise in God's blessed presence to a cursed wilderness world with thistles and thorns. And so, if you have ever had the feeling that you are spiritually homeless that you've been demoted from your proper and high calling as a human being and that God is far away you are accurately feeling the implications of verse 24 when God kicked the first man out of the garden and think about think about How Adam might have felt at the end of this expulsion. Adam was the one who was supposed to keep the garden. And now he had to swallow the bitter pill that the task of keeping the garden was reassigned to someone else. Adam, you've lost your charge. You didn't keep the garden from that crafty snake and so now you're out you're not going back in and I will appoint my heavenly emissaries cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life let me briefly mention three lessons as we walk away from this passage number one God intends us to feel the consequences of our rebellion. Th- these are not abstract and remote judgments that we feel every once in a while. Okay, God is not playing around. He intends you to feel the consequences of sin and the reality of His judgment in your everyday life. Work! Frustrating and painful, marriage. Frustrating and conflict-ridden. Childbearing, painful. Eight, what? Eight billion people in this world. Eight billion deliveries of children into this world. Continual reminders of the of our fall into sin. Marriages all over the place. Even today, many will experience exactly this kind of frustration. And how many people are always complaining about how their work isn't working out so well? Our call to do the great dominion mandate in Genesis 128, that's where God hits us, right? God blessed them and God said to them, but now, now, that boy, that blessing seems to be in the rearview mirror now. And now he, and now it's a sinful couple that has to manage and negotiate their own relational tensions that's called upon to be fruitful and multiply. I will multiply pain in your childbearing and subdue the earth, but the earth's not going to be cooperative. What's the proper response to this? Not resentment, not bitterness, not protest, but Humbly recognize your need for grace. God's judgments are true. God's judgments are right. And if you still have breath, God intends the word of His judgment to be for your good. To invite you not to shift blame onto others. Certainly not on God. But to come into the light. To turn away from sin. And to trust Him. his grace. Second lesson, Genesis 3 explains the full scope of our problems. I remember learning this through the writings of Francis Schaeffer 20 years ago. And it just, at the time, it was like lightning was, in a good way, was just going off in my head. It's like, wow, this is so helpful to see how this explains the world that we live in, right? There's spiritual conflict now. Now there's There's broken fellowship between man and God. And there's also this this spiritual conflict in terms of the serpent and his followers in in opposition to and persecuting the Messiah and his followers. Spiritual and relational conflict. And then there's further relational conflict right down at the level of marriage between a man and his wife. And then when we turn to Genesis chapter 4, we'll see conflict between The two brothers, Cain and Abel. There's psychological conflict, right? Guilt and shame and the the desire to hide. And now also there's environmental conflict where the earth is not cooperative, difficult to subdue, and often works against our very best plans. Genesis 3 explains the world as it is, the world that we live in. Finally, and most importantly, only god can save us we look for our fig leaves and loincloths we try to clean up our outward behavior some people think that well i'll get married and that will make that will make my life that marriage will save me having children will will save me. My work. My, people find their identity in their work. My work will save me. A number of years ago, I heard a preacher say, something. it's very obvious, but I hadn't really seen it before. He's like, don't miss the obvious. Man's work will not save him. Yeah, that's right here in the text, isn't it? And after all this frustration late in life, we're going to die. The death rate is holding steady. 100%, except for Enoch and Elijah, 100%. And then you're going to stand in judgment before the Holy One. We, we can't save ourselves. Only God is able to save us. And the good news of Genesis chapter 3 is that He, he hasn't written us off. But that through the promise of the woman's seed, And the righteousness that He will provide, He's made a way for us to be restored to fellowship with Him. Let me close with this. In the words of Frederick Lehman, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not kick against the fact that now we live in a cursed, judged, frustrating world. I pray that our response to that would not be anger or bitterness, but that it would be humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pray that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand and declare that every word of God is true. Every judgment of God is just. And that each and every one of us would would return to you through the the glorious way that you have appointed the death and resurrection of your very own Son. In his name we pray. Amen.